tech is not neutral and AI, what it, what's exciting about it is that it can shift power. If we just take the data as is, the historical data, we'll just keep perpetuating all the disparities and, and biases that we have. But now we do have a chance to rebalance that and to shift, shift power. Hi, and welcome to Greater Than. Here you'll listen to conversations with business leaders on how they build remarkable businesses, putting values to work for their organization and their customers. I'm Lauren Sinreich, a systems thinker and design strategist, principal of Whole Innovation and Design, and host of this podcast. Today I'm chatting with Satsko Van Antwerp, a design researcher and strategist who has focused on AI in her last several roles at software companies, including Normative, Element AI, and most recently her role at Xero in Toronto. She has two business degrees, including an MBA from York University, and previously founded a social sector design consultancy for government agencies in Canada. In our conversation, you'll hear how her experience in business and social justice impacts her approach to and hopes for AI, and we talk about the future of AI and work, data and its implications for businesses and their customers, and how in her experience, a cross-functional AI product team works together to balance desirability, feasibility, and viability. We'll jump right into the conversation. One thing that sticks out to me coming from the design thinking world and human-centered design, you were really intrigued by the how AI was changing design and implications for design. And one of the things that I was thinking coming into the conversation, I was thinking about how is design thinking changing the application of AI? And mm. it's such a different way of thinking about it. I'd love to hear more about how you feel working in AI is changing design and the implications for mm. design Ooh. considerations. Fun question. I mean, in the end, the craft is the same, right? We're still going interviewing. We're still observing people, uh, having group sessions with people. So a lot of the methods actually are similar, uh, but some of the questions will change. I mean, so for example, I might be asking more about like, if you had a really smart intern, what would you want them to do that you don't want to do? You know, so I'm trying to get at the monotonous, repetitive tasks that we could have automated for this person or but then we also want to know like well if you were going to go away on holiday and you were asking um, your associate to work on some stuff what work would you save for yourself when you got back right so Mm -hmm. that's work that they love to do that we don't want to take away from them um, or automate away even if it could be automated people that we work with are different Um, so the people that I would have been collaborating with at the first company I went to after my startup were more developers and then like UX designers. Uh, but now who I'm collaborating with, uh, is just a wider kind of stakeholder group or, or team members profile. So yes, we're still working with developers and UX uh, designers, but then also machine learning scientists and different kinds of uh, subject matter experts for a particular industry. Um, but but in terms of the craft of what I'm doing, um, yeah, the questions are getting expanded. Um, also, some of the, I mean, what we're building is different. So the the kind of goal of the research is different. But I would say the the craft of it um, is is similar still. Yeah. Hmm. What's it like working with? I mean, in design in general, um, it's not just you know you you come up with an idea and you make it. You have to triangulate the viability, the business value and viability, technology viability, um, what the, like, how it answers customers' needs or, you know, the end users' needs, uh, and a lot of things outside of that that I think um, impact 
the long-term success or implications of what a technology is. What's that been like for you as a design researcher and lead service designer in the AI space? You know, it's um, your end product really is interpreted into code, into something that is supposed to be able to, to like generate results for itself. So how do, how do you translate those insights into that end result? Yeah. So we, we really do think in terms of uh, DVF, desirability, viability, feasibility, we use that language internally. Mm. Uh, And so design or what I'm representing is the desirability, right? Like what does a human want? How do we make this usable? Uh, Does this make sense uh, for society? And and is it humane, responsible, all that kind of stuff. So we, we stack the teams in that way. So if I'm uh, representing design or uh, desirability, then the viability will be uh, business strategists, SMEs, uh, uh, looking at does this make sense for the business, that kind of thing. And then uh, then feasibility is the technical folks, right? So the devs, the uh, machine learning scientists to see, okay, can we get some of the samples of the data and can we actually do the thing that we are trying to do here? And the way the projects get layered is that, um, well, I'm on a project right now actually that, uh, all three of these streams are kind of having happening concurrently, but of course, design research is always needing to happen first. I'm the inputs for the other stuff, so so it's a bit staggered. Uh, I'm like waving my hands a lot. I know that means nothing on a podcast, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I guess it's just it's about like clever timelines, uh, I suppose. But um, yeah, so it's kind of three kind of. Uh, not groups of people. I mean, we're all in one team and we're talking the whole time about what we're finding and what this means for the different kind of focus areas. But I will be thinking about desirability, whereas my colleague will be thinking about um, feasibility and, and viability, uh, respectively. Mm. That's one way we do it. Uh, in terms of getting the insights into the yeah, this gets, this is like so granular. This is like nerdy conversation for like people who really like design research. But yeah, I mean, what's different about this firm is that um, I'm often the only design researcher leading a, a pro or on a project. And so the person who's joining the research with me for interviews or observation or whatever else is usually a non-design person. Sometimes it's a designer, but certainly not a researcher. And so we use that we we use that to our advantage to get more people kind of on the front line seeing what's happening on the ground. So whether it's strategy, a strategist uh, or uh, a machine learning scientist that's going to ha- be building stuff later, we will bring them in on the research. And, and then they'll be also involved in the insight generation and all that kind of stuff, even if I'm leading it. As a design researcher, what has excited you most being in the field of AI and working on AI? Well, the most important, most exciting thing is just the potential of the technology. In the end, AI is just a tool, but it has the opportunity to do a lot of good if we can get our values in there. Tech is not neutral, right? And so I'm most excited by AI, enterprise level AI, AI that, you know, has the opportunity to be used by a lot of people because it's just another slice uh, of society that we can actually embed values that are good for all people. Like, you know, some of those like just equality or fairness, accountability, safety, privacy, all of these things. Um, If we, if we don't intentionally embed this into the technology, it's not going to happen on its own. So um, I'm excited to be able to influence that a little bit. For example, one 
one project I was on, this is going to just sound kind of boring, but it was for uh, forecasting demand. Okay. So it's like time series looking at, um, so it was at a cosmetics company and there's a person whose job is to plan the customer demand and in, and their job is to make sure that the shelf is always full because if the shelf is not full, that means the customer is buying the competitor's product. So it's very right. important. And there's all these different factors like marketing campaigns that are going to increase buying behavior, uh, inventory levels, uh, making the product, you know, you, it's a lot of um, coordinating. And so the research that I was doing uh, for that project was specifically to help build uh, a planning tool for this uh, demand planner. But as a design researcher, you 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 plan your research in a way to understand the ecosystem a little bit more that this person operates in. And so one of the findings from this research was that um, if we were to go strictly with the data, for example, at like a Walmart in one area of town that maybe is more affluent, uh, maybe has a certain demographic shopping there, it's very possible that only one, a lighter shade, frankly, of foundation is going to be selling, whereas maybe a darker shade of um, the the same foundation line is not going to sell. And with all the pressures with lean inventory, sometimes the cosmetics company will have to buy back a product that isn't sold and it's just in time, right? And so like just in time inventory. And so mm-hmm. there's actually a disincentive from a data point of view to hold shades that do not sell. And so you can start to see how this is a, a, a issue, a, a moral ethical issue to only stock certain shades that are going to sell in certain neighborhoods. Um, so, but this is something that we uncovered because of the user research. And if we were going purely by the data, we may not have uh, realized that this, we wouldn't have prioritized this necessarily. So, um, so working in, a, in an AI firm yeah, the design research is uh, incredibly important. Yeah, that is an amazing example. So what is your response to that? Like, how did you guys go about deciding, uh, you know, in one way, there's the business reason behind it. It's like you want to maximize the shelf space. You don't want to marginalize any segment of a customer base that might come into the store looking for something sometimes, but you also don't want to plan for stocking it more frequently than it needs to be stocked, right? Uh, and so how did you guys find the right um, approach to that of, of, of what the right, the right response would be to that, that issue? As a designer, as a design researcher, I know you will subscribe to this too, but in the end, like we really believe the user is king or queen, right? Like we, my client may be, you know, cosmetics company in some ways, but actually who I really think of as my client is the user, the end user, society, humanity, that kind of thing. And so I really see it as my job to bring up these inconvenient things. I'm not shy about saying how problematic a thing is. In terms of what happens in the actual um, stream of things, I mean, this goes into my report, right? And I will definitely raise this with the machine learning uh, scientists that are building the different um, proof of concept and uh, the business strategists. I mean, the strategists also agree with me, though, because it is a risk to reputation if this was mm-hmm. a company would lose a lot of money and, and reputation over that. And so there's always a, a business implication, which is kind of the, you know, unfortunate thing not to just to do it because it's the right thing to do but that's okay we can still find the business uh, argument for it Uh, but what I would actually say what I would want to add too though is that I think um, AI can be problematic in if we don't uh, kind of highlight 
some of these issues and, and deal with them. But at the same time, um, it shines a light on everything that's already been going on that's that's uh, not working in society. The fact that, um, that, I don't know, access could be an issue. This is maybe a minor situation, but, um, or, well, not minor to, to some folks, I mean, but not life endangering or opportunity endangering. Right. I mean, it's, it's a cosmetic issue, but still not socially it's not, damaging. It's not no. jail yeah. recidivism, you know, decision or decisions about whether you're going back into jail. It's um, right. So, uh, but, but even those examples that, you know, uh, compass was something that judges were using were shown to have uh, biased results. Um, what, what's so helpful about, the AI technology. I mean, now we have the proof, the data, and now we can't ignore it. Now we have to do something about this. And so I think that's one of the, yes, it's problematic and it's all of our collective responsibility to now act and, and do something. Yeah. Mm. You know, that's kind of interesting. It's, it's in 2020, we keep looking at this year as, as a year where all the cracks in the foundations are being shown to us. And we're all kind of tracing where, some of these issues are that we weren't necessarily as aware of that kind of were lurking below the surface, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and AI is also coming of age more this year. And mm-hmm. to, to talk of AI in the sense of that, not in the sense that it is a perpetrator necessarily of this implicit bias, but as in it is an opportunity to expose these biases yeah. that we weren't necessarily doing before is a really interesting way of thinking about it. So, I mean, like, there's there's got to be one way of, you know, you you do your design research, you do your strategy, you build your code and send it off into the world and hope it does well and you can kind of evaluate it as it goes. But is there any sort of preventative measures that you can take as a design researcher or as a product person within this company that you can preemptively try to identify these biases or issues that come up? Absolutely. In the code itself? Like, oh, yeah, in, totally. Yeah. It's such a good question. And actually, one of the things that I worked on uh, over the past months uh, was a governance framework for from um, model design through um, like building it and testing it and implementing it all the way to like ongoing monitoring. There are, I think there were like in the end, 89 kind of questions to answer to help, uh, which is a lot of questions, obviously, but just to say that there are 89 areas where uh, we can not only build in safeguards, but also uh, continuously govern uh, the AI models to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, uh, achieving the right results, being, uh, keeping people safe, keep it keeping information private, all of those things. So absolutely. Uh, and there's a lot of work being done um, by all kinds of organizations uh, tackling this. I mean, it's so granular. I think I think one of the things that is interesting about AI or in general is I think people think of it as Ex Machina or like Her, the movie, or like Westworld. And like we think of sentient beings we think of it being very powerful but in the end ai is often very narrow it's applied to really kind of mundane tasks and i'm thinking about this governance framework too it's it's really boring stuff like it'll be like have you ensured that the data uh people who are providing the data uh are 
consenting or like aware of how it's being used or it's that's not even the right language but it's it's like so granular some of these little tiny things so it's literally like almost like a, a an assessment or criteria checklist to like absolutely okay, it's an you, yeah it's absolutely an assessment yeah it's an assessment tool and then the question is of course how do you actually go and address all these things and there's all sorts of best practices as well uh that people are already doing but yeah yeah, it's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty in the weeds kind of like very very technical framework. I do think it's a really useful uh, piece of work to help kind of guide those decisions and and to make sure that what we're creating is like responsible and humane and all of that. I think there's an important uh, point to be made around the intentionality of here are the things that we can look for in advance. Yeah. Let's let's. You know, there are resources that you can leverage. Let's let's apply them um, proactively to make sure that we're not um, we're frankly not being Facebook, where we're like you know <laughs> fail fast. Uh, it's not my responsibility because I'm a tech company, right? <laughs> you know, so we we want to start taking responsibility earlier. Um, so you've been working with a company that is trying to make human-centered AI, right? Like that's part of their core mission. Design is a very big part of the work that they do. From your own experience, what are you seeing service design doing to help incorporate some of that uh, intentionality and uh, proactivity in it? The example that I often think about or that we often talk about is uh, the Amazon fulfillment centers. There we have an example where we've got a lot of uh, automation, optimi- optimization, and uh, it's happened from a business lens or a kind of a technology first lens, right? Mm-hmm. And so it has created this situation that is completely inhumane for the people working there. You know, um, I think we've all read some of those stories. It's horrible. Like um, the there's so much focus on efficiency with their armband telling them where how quickly they need to go and the timer going off that. Uh, people are not able to take washroom breaks. Uh, there's been um, reports of like p- adults wearing diapers because they um, can't afford to go to the washroom, which is on the other side of the warehouse or, um, you know, urinating into bottles and things like that. Or um, I think Prime Day f- fell on Ramadan one year. And so uh, managers were saying, oh, yes, of course, you can pray and, and observe your uh, religious practices but if you did that uh, there's no way that uh, you would be able to hit your quotas and and it's very strict and you can absolutely lose your job and so um, and and so I mean and those are just two examples but all kinds of really terrible conditions uh, in these these warehouses and and so there's a lot of strikes that we are often hearing about in the news and so that's a real example of what can happen if you just keep on going for business efficiencies and using AI uh, automation and optimization uh, full tilt without really thinking about the human experience. And on the flip side of that, we, um, we did have one client that normally digital transformation projects are coming from the IT department. Um, but in this one client, it was actually coming from the HR department. It was just so lovely to see that. And it was a company who, a quite a large company, actually in the luxury space that the family who started the company are still involved in the board. And so you can see some of those values really uh, permeating through the company. This uh, AI project was coming from HR. And so the starting point of 
how can we augment people's uh, abilities or um, capabilities in their work? Uh, how can we wrap AI around their work and, and really see it as a tool that augments and amplifies them rather than, um, you know, turning people into robots kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I'm totally biased, but it's absolutely important. And, and if we don't have designers in the room, all the questions that come down about a project from a client, they always have a, a business or a organization or technology focus to them. Even when we say desirability, people still think we're talking about business desirability. Uh, so if you don't have a designer in the room, um, you just totally miss out on the, the human aspect. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point, actually, is that uh, in my experience as well, this is something that I've noticed, you know, HCD and human-centered design and, and design thinking and customer centrism is like, or customer centricity, rather, is is a is a perspective that I feel like is much more on the external facing marketing side of things, right? In my experience, I have while I have done design research um, on like like external community customer facing, a lot of my work has been focused on um, the enterprise side application of service design and design research. And because employees are, you know, the internal customers and in huge organizations that, that like the scale of some that I've worked at, you know, at that huge of an organization, everybody is a service provider to another part of the organization, right? And so you have your customers within, but still at that point, you know, you're thinking about, you're thinking about what do you need to do to, to, to make a system or process smooth and streamlined that is at the very heart of, of designing for people and experiencing processes that, that work uh, and smoothly for people. And it, it really applies on the internal enterprise side. And I think that's an opportunity that is largely missed. And also, I think one of the reasons why digital transformation isn't always necessarily as successful because um, of, of that missing element, right? You know, it's a big opportunity uh, for organizations. And it's so refreshing to hear about a, a company that their HR initiated a transformation project. That's amazing. Yeah, it was very exciting to hear for sure. Talking about the future of work, like we're in working condition, we're in working context right now, thinking about how AI is applied within organizations to help people do their jobs, to increase efficiency, you know, all of the the benefits that we know that AI is supposed to bring and transformation is supposed to bring generally. One of the things that, um, you know, as you said, AI is very specific. Um, it's very context specific. Mm -hmm. It's really good at recognizing patterns, but um, it doesn't do a great job of considering context. Um, and I'm curious to hear a little bit about what you think that means for for building AI products for workforce transformation. You know, a lot of times we want to take a tool, a solution, and apply it across the board. But, um, you know, context is really important. And especially as a design researcher, you know, anybody that comes from a qualitative research or design research background knows that context is more important than almost anything. <laughs> and so what are your thoughts about AI and the need for context? Hmm. Um, in terms of what you're kind of pointing at with context, I mean, so first I would just say that... Uh, People get really freaked out about automation and, and the future of work and what's going to happen and, and are robots going to take my job? And the first thing I usually say is just, it's just like any other 
you know, tool technology. I mean, it is a bit different. It can be quite powerful. But where we're at right now, yes, it's going to uh, redistribute, rebundle people's uh, tasks that make up one's job. But we also can remember uh, probably maybe in our, you know, when accountants used to uh, do spreadsheets by pencil and paper and, you know, you change one thing, they, it takes, you know, a couple weeks to change all the different things. And then, of course, Excel comes along and with one press of a button, boom, um, you know, it takes a, a moment. Um, and so, and this, in, in the end, augments people's work, right? Ability to do work. But it changes what they do in their in their day. Accountants are still very important in our society, but what they do as part of their tasks has changed quite a bit. And so uh, we will see that as well with uh, jobs and people's tasks. And and one of the things people will say with that is like, okay, well, people will be freed up to do other work, and and uh, there will be more new jobs. And yes, that's true for a segment of the population that can be retrained that have interest to be retrained. And something that we have to think about is that uh, some people will not be able to be retrained or, uh, you know, my, in my, when I was in the social innovation space, one of the products we were building worked with adults with developmental disabilities. And many of these adults will be working in some of these uh, different settings and they likely wouldn't be able to be retrained for a new job that, is more technical or whatever else. Um, so that's something we really need to, to think about um, and have solutions for. Um, but so but that's one thing about rebundling tasks in general. Uh, mm. Jobs are just going to look different. Um, the, the thing about context uh, that I would say is, so as we're starting to see more um, tools, in the end, it's just a tool, right? Um, but AI-enabled tools uh, as part of our work, we are going to, require more kind of I, I would kind of say like two-way communication between ourselves and whatever uh, models uh, capabilities are supporting us which is really talking about explainable AI right we need to understand how it arrived at the decision in order to evaluate do I know something more than you do because of my experience and my ability to generalize uh, or should I take your opinion or you know what you're rec recommending to me um, and this is quite a exciting area of AI, actually, explainable AI, interpretable AI, because uh, explanations, it's really complex. I mean, um, there's a great paper about this. And, and it's about like, if I just were to say like, oh, like, why did you open the window? Um, there are a number of different explanations for why uh, why did you open the window? I mean, if it, and it depends on the context, right? Like, um, it could be like, I could be interested in why the window, not the door, you know, mm -hmm. um, or it could be like, why did you do it instead of this other person do it? Or, um, why, yeah. the, you know, whatever. So like, um, explanations are so contextual. And so that's really an area where, uh, yeah, there's a lot of research going into explainable AI, which is pretty interesting with the context thing. Uh, and explainable AI, you're going to need, well, you're going to need more uh, two-way communication and you want to be able to, to, to confirm with the AI what was the driver, what was the context, why, why did it make a decision or mm -hmm. why did it do something. But yeah. it's also kind of interesting because initially when you're saying like these two-way things, it's like AI 
it's impossible to code for everything. It's impossible to create enough algorithms to like give instructions for it to say for everything. So it's learning, of course. And so you're asking it, but like, what about the vice versa of it learning from you more consistently, totally. right? Yeah, you nailed it. Yeah, so that's right. It's a, it's a learning loop, right? Like um, the person with the experience like in an assembly line at a factory, so maybe, uh, or a warehouse, if we're using AI for anomaly detection to show when something on the line, there's a, a malfunction or a, a, something's wrong with the product, the person on the line has to... Uh, has way more experience to know and you don't want to just stop the, the production just because the model uh, tells you because it costs the company a lot of money or it could create a safety issue there's a lot of things going on um, so I mean that again points to this um, thing around like human in the loop and um, having how to ensure that the person who does have all this experience that is kind of training this machine through uh, you know ongoing as as things are happening um, how to ensure that this person is engaged at the right moment uh, that they are not having skill atrophy so they're not forgetting also their their own skills because they're not doing it anymore this machine's mostly doing it for them um, there's all kinds of other issues that that come into play none of this is figured out yet uh, but but we are considering and working through it I guess this is the edge of the field so is this um building explainable AI and making more explicit like the why behind things and helping AI understand context a little better. Do you feel like this is largely a role for the for engineers or do you feel like, I mean, I'm creating a false binary here, but, yeah. or do you feel like this is like a big part to play for design research and design thinking? It's definitely a technical question as well, because you can actually build models in a way that they can explain their results better or worse or whatever, right? So so there is a technical component to it. There's also a way to build um, after an explanation to post hoc, like after the fact, find the explanation. So it's like, do you build it into the model? Like the model is just very explainable or do you have the model that's not so explainable, but then you build the thing so that it can explain itself? I mean, there's these, this is very technical uh, yeah. ways of addressing this issue. Um, in terms of understanding what needs to be explained and how the person will interpret it, I mean, I mean that's all design, right? That's design mm -hmm. research. That's uh, how do you set up the interface so that it's not too much cognitive load? What else are they having to do? I mean, this is all design. So it's it's a classic uh, situation of, of having to collaborate. A lot of what everybody has read about AI is like the implicit learnings of bias or uh, prejudices or just patterns that it picked up that we didn't realize that we were teaching it. Mm -hmm. um, what is your view on our preferred kind of theory of economics of, of what a job means or, or our worldview about what a company is for um, has on, on the value and result of, of the application of AI in, a, in like a workforce setting. So I'm half Japanese, right? And like, uh, so in Japan, Japan is like famous for uh, lifetime employment, right? There's so much trust when you exit school or, or, you join a company and you're really thinking you're going to stay with that company for your entire life. That's the social contract you have with this company. You, you will do everything for this company and, and they will do everything for you too. They'll protect you too. And we just don't have that same social contract in uh, North America. Um, 
So I think that's one thing. I mean, there's stories of in Japan where uh, a company, I they were a manufacturing company and um, they were losing money. They're, they're losing business. And instead of firing people, they sold machinery and made a, like a, a garden and people worked there on the garden until then the economy improved and then they bought machines again. And, um, and, and we see that, I think it's in Sweden as well. Um, people are not afraid of automation because the social safety nets are so strong there. The government's got you your back if you do get let go from your company, but also there too, they have this um, trust with their comp- between employee and employer that if these new technologies come in and their jobs are um, done by machinery instead, that they'll get retrained and moved to a different part of the organization. And so um, that's just a big difference between our, our social contract. That's a big, that's a big one. And that's also an interesting point because that's less of employer. It's like, it's the stance of the employer, but it's also, it's the, it's the, the psychology that it creates for the employees. Right. And so we're getting into this topic that I feel like maybe isn't necessarily as commonly discussed around AI of like psychological safety. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of times people talk about psychological safety in a space and in, in the reference to it as like a, I'm safe to express myself and to contribute and things, but this also means like a sense of security uh, in job. And that actually, there's a lot of studies that show that makes people more productive and, and more engaged employees and, and better off. So that's really interesting is, is that, you know, rather than thinking about the implications of how AI is rolled out, it's about the, the human psychology and receptivity to AI is actually a really important part of its success as well. Yeah, and it's not necessarily the the company that can create that, right? Like this is, we're talking about like cultural forces, like, like in the design field, it's not uncommon to change uh, role, workplaces every couple of years. One thing that uh, I find really interesting about AI, tech is not neutral. And AI, what it, what it can do, what's exciting about it is that it can shift power. It can, it can rebalance the system. There's just, there's just so much potential for using AI to create a more just world, the kind of world that we want to see. If we just take the data as is, the historical data, we'll just keep perpetuating all the disparities and uh, discrepancies and biases that we have, you know, until now. But but now that we do have a chance to rebalance that and to shift shift power, I think that's probably the most exciting part about AI. Do you have any examples of where you've seen the AI AI applied to and it has shifted power? Not to everyone always uses the compass example uh, with the judges deciding if a, a defendant is going to be uh, returned to jail or if they basically compass is, is calculating the recidivism rate of uh, defendants and if you if you acknowledge that racism exists, you can rebalance that so that more people are able to be free from that. It's a, it's a bit complicated because you have to actually treat black and white defendants differently. Like you have to, you have to acknowledge race and skew it. Mm. Um, But, but that, yeah, it just makes us have to look at what's true about um, what's true about society. If you use it in a nuanced way, you can create fairer outcomes. And so 
uh, until we kind of get to where we truly are post-racial, we need to we need to admit that tech is not neutral and that we have to go in there and shift power in order to, yeah, to make things more just. Yeah. And I can also see in like a nuanced way in a company setting where you're like having to make explicit decision-making processes that were previously held in private spaces in certain offices, certain people, right. And has like my interpretation of that is that has the potential to make things a little bit more transparent and explicit. Yeah, and even, you know what, another example is handwriting. This is something that we're just looking at from an exploratory point of view right now, but people with uh, more affluent backgrounds have a certain type of handwriting. New immigrants who may have learned a different writing style in their home country have a different kind a of different handwriting. different alphabet, yeah. Yeah, if you yeah. speak different languages, um, you might have different, you know, all there's all these different factors that can mean that we have different looking handwriting. And that also means that uh, machines can pick up on that. Uh, And so it can mean that when we're talking about forms being filled out for different things, uh, for different services, for, again, loans is the classic one, uh, but different kinds of applications. If the machine is starting to learn by proxy the person's background based on their handwriting, that's going to create bias as well. And so that's an area that we just need to rebalance that we have to make sure that uh, these things aren't happening. And so, um, yeah, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of areas where bias creeps in. And so we got to, we have to know that and uh, intentionally shift how the, how it's, how it's doing it. Yeah. Those are, I mean, those are both really interesting examples. Are there any resources or books that you would recommend for people that are interested in design research or AI or how the two interrelate? Well, the first book that comes to mind is like a dystopian short story book, <laughs> but I don't know if that's good for um, for others. I really enjoy this book because it, it's looking into the future of what can go wrong if corporations were to run cities, but it kind of uh, I think it kind of it amplifies some of the traits of the different technologies, which I think is kind of interesting. It, I think it's called something like um, if cities were run by Amazon or something like that. But it's a bit dark. Like I think it's in, I, it's kind of black black mirror ish. Um, but I but quite fiction like always does such a good job of of pointing some of these things out for us. Like algorithmic bias. So there's a great book called Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. So this one is by Safia Umoja Noble. Another one that is phenomenal and like must be mentioned is um, Weapons of Math Destruction. That one's so famous, like it's on a lot of lists, Uh, but that talks specifically about um, bias. Another really good one is called Race After Technology by Ruha Benjamin. So again, talking about um, how bias is creeping into almost everything that we use. Yeah, there are there are so many good books. There's another one called uh, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Great. They're great suggestions. Thanks so much. This was such a, a great conversation and I really loved learning your perspective from a, from a design research and service design perspective of AI and what it means for the workforce and what it means for, for people in general. So thanks so much for, for chatting with me. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. 
Thanks for listening to Greater Than. Show notes are available on the podcast page on our website, wearewhole.co. That's wearewhole.co. If you enjoy this conversation, leave a review where you stream your podcast and share it with others who might like it too. 